0: This is the Brickcourt Chambers Centenary Podcast. Hello, I'm Finn Pilbro, and welcome to this special Centenary Podcast series. It's 100 years since what is now Brickcourt Chambers was founded by William Jowett. To mark our 100th birthday, we are bringing together past and present members of Chambers to discuss their experiences in practice, on the bench, and in all sorts of places that a career in law has taken them. Through these conversations, we hope to celebrate past achievements, discuss current issues, and hear opinions on what lies in store in the future. In this first episode, we hear from Sir Nicholas Green, Lord Justice Green, and Helen Davies, QC. After swimming for England and a career in academia, Nick Green became a barrister. He joined Brick Court Chambers and practised, domestically and internationally, in European, competition, public, administrative and constitutional law. He took silk and then, in 2010, was chair of the bar. He was also joint head of chambers until he went to the High Court bench. In 2018, he was promoted to the Court of Appeal and appointed as chair of the Law Commission. Helen Davies was called to the bar in 1991, joining Brick Court as a pupil, where one of her pupil masters was none other than Nick Green. Helen's practice encompasses much of the breadth of Brick Court's work, from heavy commercial litigation to competition law and euro work. She took Silk in 2008 and became Joint Head of Chambers in 2013, one of the first female heads of a Magic Circle set. Nick and Helen's conversation was recorded remotely, given lockdown restrictions.
1: Nick, good morning.
2: Good morning.
1: Shall we start at the beginning? What brought you to the bar and then to Brick Court from a life in academia? Well, I
2: started life, as you say, teaching as a junior lecturer at Southampton University. Company law, European law, contract law and tort. And I completed a PhD while I was teaching. And after four years, I decided that what I really wanted to do was to make law, not just write about what others had done. And I'd always wanted to go to the bar. And can you give us a flavour of
1: what Brick Court was like when you arrived?
2: It was Moving between the, the 18th and the 19th centuries, I think at the time, uh, I moved into a, a garret that was occupied by David Vaughan, Queen's Council, Gerald Barling and David Anderson, plus a researcher. And there were two rooms which we shared. Uh, it's the Tudor building at the bottom of Chancery Lane. Chambers was dotted around all over the place, but we recognized that we needed to grow and to move. And there were moves afoot at the time to get us out of one brick court, where we'd been for the last 80 or so years, uh, into a new building, which we did shortly after I joined Chambers. And so I think we moved in 1990 or 1991 to Devereux Court. And that's when we really started
1: to become a modern set of Chambers. Of course, that time at Brick Court on the European competition side was a time of huge development of the law, which coming from academia must have been particularly exciting for you.
2: The great buzz, the, the adrenaline rush was that everybody was doing factotain, um, was doing Sunday trading. This was a time in which everybody in the European Court knew the law inside out, upside down. It was before expansion. You could go to the European Court and you could talk in shorthand about wonderful principles, great themes. Uh, and you could really make the law. And back in the national courts, judges were interested and excited by it. And you could advance theories and principles, which they might or might not grab hold of. But it was a, a period of enormous excitement in and development of constitutional and public law. And we were absolutely at the, the cutting edge of that, led by the indomitable David Vaughan Queen's
1: counsel. In mean, fact, Tame, to my mind, sort of epitomises that period, because that was, of course, a case where the Spanish fishermen had gone to various other eminent leading counsel and they'd suggested they didn't have a chance. And then they came to David and to Brick Court. And David's boundless enthusiasm and insight, really, into actually what the impact of European law might be on UK law was such that he, he got the team going. David was a force of nature and his a unique
2: skill was instinct. He just was able to sniff a
1: point that nobody else had thought about and that might just run and win in court. When you think back to those, those days, I mean, I was lucky enough to get a berth in Factor Tame, uh, bringing some more fishermen in, and then, in fact, being in the Court of Justice hearing for the final Court of Justice hearing, which was the one when they decided that a member state could be liable for damages for misimplementing or failing to comply with European Community law, which was a hugely political significant decision, and the Court of Justice hearing is like no other I have ever been in. You could hear a pin drop when Sir Nicholas Lyle, also a Brit court, stood up uh, to argue the case for the government, because all the member states had a vested political interest in whether or not they were going to be found liable to pay compensation, uh, and of course nationally. Whilst damages is a remedy for judicial review, it had never actually happened before. No, that's right. I remember
2: Nick Lyle, who was, of course, Attorney General at the time, was appearing for the government. And as you say, um, it was a momentous moment. Uh, And the court established that damages were, at least in principle, available to claimants. And then we went back to the High Court and we had in the divisional court, in other words, in the administrative court proceedings, what was in effect a trial. Uh, and it was apparent towards the end of the case that uh, we would win and we were going to be awarded damages. And, and it, it just naturally followed from the European Court's judgment. And in principle, of course, damages are surveillable in administrative law proceedings, albeit exceptionally rare. It's not the normal remedy. Uh, but it was a remarkable set of circumstances and a remarkable case
1: so they were very exciting times and it's in a way uh, odd that we're discussing them now a month or so after the the UK has left the European Union um and we're actually in some ways there are parallels and this time instead of being the law law arguer the advocate you're going to be the law maker which is quite exciting
2: <laughs> well when i was asked about this in relation to the law commission how we were going to deal with brexit it, it struck me that the way we would deal with the law commission is the way the judges will deal with it. We're we're apolitical. And it seems to me what we've got to do on an apolitical basis is simply make it work. We've got a a system. It's not going to be easy. There will be lots of wrinkles and gaps. And we've just got to somehow make this new system work. Um, It's probably dangerous for me to say anything more than that.
1: (laughs) I'm sure that's right. So coming back to life at Brick Court, I became your pupil, I think, in... April 1992, and was That's lucky right. enough that about a day after I became your pupil, you got instructed in a very interesting merger case.
2: Yes, that was. Um, we were instructed for what was then the iconic British company ICI, and they were selling their acrylics business to DuPont, the American company, and the European Commission became interested on the basis that the merger or the sale might be anti-competitive. And I recollect that, that you and I were in Millbank at their headquarters at the point in time in which the scission of the company was announced, in which they split the traditional chemicals sector from the pharmaceuticals and pesticides sector. And I, I remember people, the announcement being made, and we were in a conference room and all the lawyers walking outside and there was discussions and we didn't know what was going on. And people were then saying, which side of the business are you moving to? And there was one side which became known as bugs and drugs. And the other side was known rather rudely as, uh, well, it had a rude word attached. It It began with an S and an H. So you were either on that side of the business or you were on bugs and drugs. But it was a great case because we spent our time, if you recollect, commuting almost on a daily basis between London, Brussels and Paris. Uh, And on occasion, we even had use of the chairman's private jet to get us quickly backwards and forwards to where we needed to be for the preparations for the European Commission hearings. So it was rather an interesting case. It happened all very, very quickly, didn't it?
1: Yeah, I do. I mean, I remember, and it was wonderful as a pupil because literally you got instructed the day after I, my, my time with you started, and the oral hearing in front of the European Commission was almost the week that my pupilage with you finished. So to see a case from start to finish as a pupil was something that was very unusual, but it was incredibly valuable. Yes. As well as getting to go on a private jet, which, of course, I'd never had the opportunity to do before.
2: And, and you were brought along to the hearings in Brussels for, for two reasons. One was the traditional junior pupil's role to take a note, but also it was to keep the senior members of the chemical sector uh, out of trouble. I seem to remember that they corralled you into some late night drinking session. But what impressed everybody, and of course, I know you always deny having had too much on that occasion, and I wouldn't gainsay that. But what really impressed everybody was that at seven o'clock the following morning, you were down, bright and breezy, ready for breakfast and ready to go to the hearing, whilst the rest of this heavy drinking bunch were looking worse for wear.
1: I couldn't possibly comment. But it, it was a fun time. It was a fun time. And Meanwhile, your practice just went from strength to strength, Uh, and the development of early actions in which claims of damages were made for breaches of competition law, that was very much something you were at the forefront of?
2: Yes, in in the 90s, an enormous industry-wide battle grew up between pub owners uh, and brewers on the one side and tenants on the other side. And almost every major brewer and pub owning company found themselves in litigation with vast numbers of their lessees and tenants. And I was instructed for a very high percentage of the brewers and pub owners. I probably had seven or eight or nine of them instructing me at the time. Um, And we were running effectively a centralised strategy because this was worth hundreds of millions, if not billions across the industry as a whole. The balance of who could control supplies. Uh, was fundamental to the profitability of the industry. Uh, And I spent, probably probably going back to the mid-1990s, but there was a period of two or three years when I was in court probably three or four times a day for some brewer or other, sometimes in front of the Chancery Masters, sometimes High Court, and gradually these cases moved up to the Court of Appeal and then became test cases. And then, of course, we went, Courage and Korean went to the European Court of Justice and then came back. We had a trial of the issues encouraging Korean, which included the issue as to whether the national courts were bound by commission decisions, which went all the way to the House of Lords. So for a period of six, seven, eight years, I was very, very heavily involved in working out the implications of damages actions for breach of competition
1: law. And of course, those were the days, it's difficult to think now, but it will probably be the position in... 20 years time, perhaps, following Brexit, when the English courts were just not familiar with commission decisions, court of justice decisions, the European Community Treaty. Do you remember when we did a case a few years later than Courage and Crean, a case called BAGS, uh, and Mr. Justice Morgan had never had to look at articles 85 and 86, as they then were, of the EC Treaty, uh, and was rather perplexed about the fact that it didn't provide complete answers.
2: Yes, he grappled very well with that case. It was a difficult case, very hotly contested between the parties and fraught. Uh, and he soldiered on with it. I can't remember. It went on for quite a long time. But you you'll recollect it was between the gambling industry who I was acting for. And I think you were for a television company that wanted to acquire and develop horse racing rights. Uh, and that rather undermined my client's own television aspirations. And uh, we were ganging up against you to to give you a good beating if we could we, we failed on that side of the case as I remember And you were with Peter Roth but there was someone from the was it the gambling times or the racing times who used to turn that had been caught every day the racing post the racing post and didn't he have nicknames for us all we all used to avidly follow the racing post throughout that trial
1: what were you called uh, I was given the moniker Aunt Edith I can't remember your Monica, unfortunately. I'm sure it wasn't no, flattering certainly. either. I I, mean, I was the only member of the council team who'd ever been to a race course. And so it was quite amusing. I remember vividly you cross-examining about the paddock and, and so on and so forth. And it was quite clear that you had no idea how, how any of it worked. <laughs> um, but I, in fact, discovered afterwards why I'd been described as Aunt Edith, because I went uh, to another race course after the uh, event and found myself, funny enough, standing next to the journalist, and I couldn't resist asking him why why on earth he'd called me Aunt Edith. I, I wasn't very old at the time, I don't think, and I wasn't uh, uh, an aunt. And he said it was because I reminded him of his Aunt Edith, who was very efficient and who brooked no nonsense. So I quite like that. <laughs>
2: I don't I don't remember what my moniker was. And if I did remember it, I certainly wouldn't be recording it here. But I do remember that none of the descriptions that he had for the council teams were flattering. They were funny, though, and we enjoyed them.
1: But of course, practice wasn't enough for you, because as well as this kind of hard hitting multinational practice, you decided to engage in some public spirited work as well.
2: There was always a part of me, probably the academic part of me, that felt that just acting for shareholders and companies, however worthy they were, was not enough. And um, I, I first became involved, if you like, the politics of the bar in the late 90s when I took over as chairman of the bar European group. When Peter Duffy, QC, died of cancer, tragically, a most brilliant lawyer, and he would have gone very far had he lived, and I took over as chairman from Peter in 1999. I did the residue of his term and then my own term. So I was chair for three years. And then in the light of that, uh, the chairman of the Bar Council invited me on to what was effectively the executive committee of the Bar in about 2002. Because it was at that, time that, at that time that the government was becoming interested in regulation of competition in the legal profession. And the Bar Council needed some regulatory expertise to deal with the government. And so I went on to the Bar Council, went on to the General Management Council of the Bar, which is its executive committee. Uh, and over the next few years, I chaired a variety of different Bar Council committees, the International Committee, the Legal Services Committee and so on. I, I remember they clearly having a conversation with the then chairman. It was about 2006. It was Geoffrey Voss, now the master of the rolls. And he and I decided that there was such a crisis in criminal legal aid that the commercial bar needed to help the criminal publicly funded sector, including the family lawyers, to sort it out. And we decided this was a commercial problem, not a criminal problem or a family law problem. And there was myself, Tim Dutton, Desmond Brown and Jeffrey. And Jeffrey's conception was that we would, as it were, share the leadership over the next four years Uh, and devise a strong commercial team to fight the government on legal aid, which is what happened. And I rather put off taking on the chairmanship, but I became chair of the Bar Council in 2010 at the culmination of that four-year period. Uh, And we'd fought a lot of battles. But then, of course, we got hit with the austerity budgets when the Conservative Party obtained power in the spring summer 2010. And we were hit with 25 26 27% cuts across government, including to legal aid, including to the court system, including to the CPS. The scale of the crisis that we were confronting was entirely different then. Uh, and that's really set the scene for my involvement in public life over the last 10 years, I suppose.
1: And how had the skills you'd acquired in practice equipped you to perform the role of chairman of the bar, do you think?
2: Well, I'd spent uh, my entire time in practice working with economists, accountants, statisticians and others, um, dealing often with very technical cases where you had to get involved in the minutiae of something and master it. But you also had to be able to stand back and see the bigger picture. What were the themes, the principles that you were playing with? And uh, very much the same thing applied to the politics of the time. How do we fight the government? How do we mitigate the effects of austerity? But we used statisticians, we brought in professional economists, we developed arguments, uh, and the experts that we used were very good, and they had a real effect. Uh, The effect was, I suppose, incremental, because the scale of the cuts was so great that
1: the damage was profound. And I I remember talking to you uh, when you were chairman of the bar, and during that time, you suddenly had the ability to have access to politicians uh, and other public figures in a way that practice had not afforded you. So coming back to Brick Court after having been chairman of the bar must have been a little bit flat, I imagine. It,
2: it, I, I suppose so. You, you're right that being chairman of the bar gives you almost unfettered access. I don't think I quite appreciated that before I became chairman. But I remember the private office saying to me when David Cameron became prime minister, um, you know, we better write a letter of congratulation. It's what you do. So I wrote one and I had a very nice letter back from him, a personalised letter which said the Prime Minister and my, the Cabinet will be available to the Bar Council on a range of different issues. We look forward to working with you. And they were as good as their promise, really. They lived up to that promise. You had access. And if you, you know, if the private office arranged a meeting with a minister, you would get to see that minister. You didn't always have as much influence as you liked, but you had access. Um, And that was really very important at the time because we needed to get to ministers and senior civil servants and try and mitigate the harm. When I came back to Brick Court, um, one has to have it clearly in one's own mind that you are falling off a cliff and your successor is now top dog and you have to get out of their way. So come the end of the year, you walk away and you are yesterday's person and you have to accept that. And I think I realised that it being a one-year job was just not enough to achieve everything you wanted. It was one of the lessons I learned that if you really want to have an effect, you need to be in position for two, three, four years in a job um, to be able to take a much longer-term view. But I was quite rapidly... Things changed in Brick Court. Um, Jonathan Sumption went to the Supreme Court and I became head of chambers, jointly with Jonathan Hurst. And at that time, I was asked by Terry Etherton, who was then the chairman of COIC, the body that runs the Inns of Court, to take over as chair of the Advocacy Training Council. So I had two new jobs to keep me entertained, as well as coming back to practice.
1: Well, let's talk a bit more about the Advocacy Training Council because you have told me that's one of the things you're proudest of in your career. And it must be hard to find some highlights amongst so many. So tell me why. Well, the, the Advocacy
2: Training Council is, is a body that combines everybody in the profession, judges, barristers, and others, uh, in providing training in advocacy for the profession. But more than that, it does rule of law and advocacy training internationally. Uh, and it also was working very hard on producing toolkits. Uh, particularly, we had a very, very important project relating to the protection of vulnerable witnesses in the courts, mainly the criminal courts, but also the family courts. And, and it, I think, in reflection, is one of the things I'm proudest of. I wasn't the draft of the toolkits. I had experts from law, you know, from the, from the judiciary, from children's charities, assisted by psychiatrists and so on, um, to help. But I was a facilitator, and I was very active in that. And I uh, very clearly remember appreciating what we'd done when I had an email from a judge in California, and this judge had been trying a case which concerned an autistic child who had been causing disruption at school, and the teacher had put the child in a stationary cupboard or some such. And when it came to trial, nobody knew how to deal with collecting evidence from the autistic child. And one of those had done some research on the internet, had come across our website and our toolkit on dealing with autism and Asperger's, and they'd adopted it. And the judge was amazed and delighted that they'd found a procedure for dealing with a highly vulnerable child in a very sensitive situation. And they'd come through the trial, they believed, with success and he thought he'd write to me and I thought well that's a real testament to the work that we're doing. Certainly that project was one I feel proudest of across my entire career.
1: Uh, and you mentioned you also in this period were joint head of chambers with Jonathan Hurst. Yes. What what, what was your experience of being a joint head of chambers uh, particularly a big commercial set like Brick Court?
2: Well, uh, it was a great pleasure working with Jonathan, as as everybody knows. Jonathan, they tragically died of cancer a few years ago. And Jonathan was a larger-than-life character. Uh, His outward appearance might have been a little bit bluff, but in fact he was an extraordinarily wise soul, a very kind soul. And we got on very well and we worked very well together. We didn't always agree on things, but what I learned was that if Jonathan disagreed with me, it was then my responsibility to go away and rethink, because... He never said something that wasn't, as I put it, wise, thought through, you know, carefully thought through. Um, And I was only joint head of chambers with him for two years before I went to the bench. But in Brick Court, you've got a group of the most extraordinarily talented individuals. They're all very focused on their own practices. They're all stars in their own firmament. And it was sometimes a little bit like herding cats, but. But you did it with um, you did it with the knowledge that, you know, you, you had the privilege of herding this extraordinarily talented group of cats um, and they did their own thing. And uh, it was great to see it. Uh, you didn't always get the credit that perhaps you thought one deserved, but that wasn't why one did the job. Um, it was a privilege to work with such a group of individuals. Um, but I only did it for two years before I went to the bench. And then, of course, yes. you took over and you've been doing it now for nearly
1: eight years. I have indeed. Um, obviously, in the beginning, alongside Jonathan, and I absolutely agree with uh, everything you've said about him. He was an extraordinary man uh, with a very wise head. Uh, and sometimes I did disagree with him as well. But And like you, I'd go away and reform. And he, the thing was, he would listen, however, and sometimes he would accept that I was right and he was wrong and vice versa. Uh, and then, of course, he had his terrible struggle with cancer, which he and fiona bore with such great resilience Uh, and for a little period then i was effectively running things a little bit on my own while he was ill i mean as you say it's an incredibly talented bunch of individuals and an incredibly successful place and as head of chambers um your role really is 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 not dramatic in the sense that it's not a place that needs taking by the scruff of the neck and sorting out but it's nudging and it's nudging in various directions and so I think Chambers has become a more modernized uh, collegiate body in some ways Um, over the last eight years we've we've got you know we have a director of finance amongst other things and a director of marketing which you know 10 years ago at least would have been um, unthought of we've got more social responsibility so I'm very proud that you know as part of our Centenary celebrations, we're fundraising for some very important charities. And I'm also, I I think we're just becoming a more modern and diverse bunch in many ways. And and if I look back at Chambers over the time, you know, the transformation from when when I joined, when what we were 30, maybe 35 members of Chambers, I think I was the fourth woman to join. Um, We're now over 90 Ninety-two. Um, we've got over twenty women in chambers. No woman has left chambers having had children. Our retention policies in that respect are are wonderful. Uh, and in in part, it's because chambers and I, and I think this is something. Well, I, I like to think this is something that I've contributed. Chambers has become a place. It's a nice place to work where we have good policies that support everyone um and i've always felt that of course you've got to have the right policies to support working women and you've got to recognize that you've invested in the talent and the talent is something you want to retain but if you also have good policies to support paternity leave parental leave generally for example then everyone in chambers is going to value um the work-life balance which is an important part i think we're we're modernizing we're, no, we're nowhere near the place that you or I joined any anymore. we have still probably got a way to go, but we, but it's you know, nudging in that direction really.
2: I'm sure you're absolutely right and the retention of one's you know, the female practitioners, the women practitioners is, is incredibly important. It always struck me it's just common sense. Um, you invest hugely in all the people you take on and it's, an, it's a shocking waste if you don't retain them. And you want your tenants and your pupils to be happy. You want them to be able to thrive and you want to be able to stay. And we don't want them, You know, the more senior I become in the profession, the more important it is that you have really strong women appearing in the courts, providing advice, becoming judges, being promoted, taking positions of leadership. And otherwise we're just losing talent. Um, It's not just the right thing to do morally. It is practically. So doing whatever's necessary to keep women at the bar is, seems to be a no-brainer.
1: Absolutely. Of course, we didn't manage to keep you at the bar because in 2013, you were appointed to the High Court uh, and into the Queen's Bench Division. A lot of people might have thought you'd have gone into the Chancery Division, given your competition law expertise. Why did you decide the Queen's Bench Division?
2: Well, it's funny, I'd had a conversation with Andrew Morritt, who was the Chancellor at the time, who'd written to me saying, we're running a competition, would you apply to the Chancery Division? And I thought about it, but uh, I thought about it for not very long, um, because I-, I didn't want to not do crime. I'd become a recorder in about 2004. And I used to sit and do my stint at Snaresbrook Crown Court in the East End, the biggest crown court centre in Europe, 23 courts, I think. And there was always an unbelievably fascinating work to do there. And I just loved sitting in crime. And if I'd gone into the Chancery Division, I couldn't have done that. Um, so I also wanted to do public law and constitutional law, which was a lot of what EU law had been about. Um, and I, I recollect, and I think this was sometime in, in late 2012, bumping into John Thomas, who was the president of the Queen's Bench Division at the time, later Lord chief at a conference and saying, John, I'm about to do something silly. Um, I'm thinking of applying to the bench. And he grabbed me and said, you must apply to the QBD. Don't apply to the Chancery Division. Um, and that confirmed my view. What, you,
1: what surprised you most about the move to the bench?
2: Um, you you moved from brick cord, which is which was ultra efficient. I mean, if there was anything wrong with my computer, someone would walk into my room at least 10 seconds before it happened. And they would precinctly say, your computer is about to have a malfunction. I'm going to cure it before it happens. You then move across the road, literally 20 metres to the Royal Courts of Justice into this enormous Victorian, vast building. Uh, There are on the private side nearly three miles of corridors in the RCJ and uh, literally thousands of rooms. It's an enormous complex. And you are bewildered and you are just suddenly told you're starting your first cases will be appearing on your desk and you, you think, what on earth have I let myself in for? But quite rapidly, you realise that it has a very good system. It's slightly archaic, it's uh, it's slightly Victorian, but it works.
1: And has your view about what makes a good advocate changed?
2: Let me put it this way. The, the style of advocacy that judges most like is the concise, understated advocate, the advocate that really knows his or her stuff and can present it quickly and efficiently without repetition and without too many adjectives you know when you hear sort of highfalutin overblown adjectives being shot at you your brain goes into freeze mode and you're filtering you're thinking yeah 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 okay when's the point coming yeah oh oh that's the point right okay i'll write down one word in my notebook as a memory jogger and then you know, you're you're just waiting for the analysis. Because for the most part, at the high court level and above, we've done a lot of work in advance, we're reasonably familiar with the case, you've got to a point where you are on top of the facts, on top of the issues, you haven't quite worked out where the nuances lie, or necessarily who's going to win or lose. But you may have a provisional view. So you are filtering what you hear, to try and pick up the bits that you're interested in. And when you have advocates that are showing off to their clients, yes, all right. I mean, I know some of my colleagues are perhaps a little bit uh, frosty, perhaps with those sorts of advocates, but you listen, you sit and listen. They've got a job to do. You must sit and listen. Try not to interrupt, sometimes it's difficult. Um, But the ones you like are those that are calm, reasonable, pick up the three or four best points and discard the rest. And they're the most effective. They're more likely to win than the scattergun advocates. Because we know who they are, and we know that if, you know, Barrister X, if she says that this is the case, she's likely to be right, and we should flipping well take note. We do, because we know she's right.
1: Things have moved on a bit from when we used to work together. I remember producing drafts of skeletons for you, and all you'd do is add more adjectives.
2: <laughs> well, I had to add something to them, didn't
1: I? <laughs> Yes, I suppose so. Anyway, being a High Court judge wasn't enough. You then decided you had to take on the Law Commission as well. So how's that been?
2: The, the Law Commission, uh, my, my predecessors and my colleagues describe it as probably the best job in the judiciary. Um, you, you get your birth in the Court of Appeal, but you move out to the Royal Court of Justice. I mean, I've still got a room there and I still sit. Um, but you move over to Whitehall and the Law Commission's based in Petit France, just uh, just close to Westminster Abbey and Houses of Parliament. Uh, I've got 65 lawyers and researchers, and I don't think anyone quite appreciates it until you're in the job, that you are pretty central to government. We have on our books about 20 law reform projects, uh, which is a very high percentage of the government's you know, heavy weight legal reform, if you set aside COVID and Brexit subordinate legislation. Um, and we're covering the entire gamut of issues from the digital economy all the way through to hate crime. Um, And as chairman, you become involved in everybody's projects. I have four statutory commissioners and each commissioner will be dealing with four or five major law reform projects. And we go through consultation and then we go to recommendations. Uh, And my job as chairman is to work with the teams as and when things become politically sensitive, to do quite a lot of the negotiations with central government over the taking on of new projects or when matters become difficult in a project, um, to do a lot of the external stakeholder engagement. So I'm regularly meeting with ministers or with senior civil servants or with external, you know, external stakeholders in industry or in general society. Um, you are the outward face of the Law Commission. Uh, and it is absolutely fascinating because the range of work that as chairman I become involved in is is enormous. Um, I thought as a constitutional and public lawyer, I understood how Whitehall and... Parliament worked uh, from the outside, and I thought having done the Bar Council, the Advocacy Training Council, having been a presider, presiding judge on the High Court, but I didn't. Until you get into the centre and you see it from a nuts and bolts point of view, you don't really understand it. And I think it'll make me a far better constitutional and public lawyer to have been at the centre and to have a much deeper understanding of how government really works.
1: Your time as chair of the Law Commission has, of course, coincided with Brexit. Has that added pressure?
2: It's made it very much more complicated, very much more interesting. Um, When I was appointed to this job in the summer of 2018, Brexit was an ongoing crisis within government. Um, I was dealing with almost a minority government or a government with a very, very slim majority who really couldn't get anything through Parliament. Parliament was in a form of stasis, it wasn't able to, didn't have the bandwidth or capacity to deal with major legislative projects. And there was a degree of frustration within the office that our proposals and our draft bills were not finding parliamentary space. But my view was slightly different. I I took this as an opportunity to encourage the Commission to look very deeply inwardly at itself, to see how we could modernise ourselves, improve what we were doing. Um, such that once the logjam lifted, as it is now, I mean, it's taken nearly three years, we would then be in a much, much stronger position. And One of the things I felt we had to do was to agree a new financial and governance relationship with government. And I had initial and quite positive discussions with David Gork, um, who was the Lord Chancellor in 2018, uh, and then subsequently with Robert Buckland. We have agreed an entirely new governance and financial relationship, which put us in a very strong position, very pleased about it. Um, and now we're embarking upon this 14th programme. And now the logjam in Parliament has lifted. There is now scope for a lot of Law Commission bills and Law Commission proposals to start being implemented. And it's going to take time, of course, and we understand this is a government with a majority. It has the ability to push things through and we have to work with whatever government it is that's in power. Um, so, so we've had the period of introspection. I think we're in a very strong position. We've got some terrifically interesting projects Uh, on our books. We've taken on, you know, hate crime, indecent images, online abuse. We've just agreed with government to take on a complete review of corporate crime models. We're producing an options paper for government. And there's a number of projects which I'm in discussion with government about.
1: After such an illustrious career, do you ever stop and think, well, if I put myself back into the position I was when I started... What advice would I give myself and what would I tell myself not to worry about?
2: Yeah, I, th- I think I would tell myself not to worry about where the next case is coming from. There's this paranoia at the bar that you, that when this case stops, you'll be forever unemployed in the future. Something always turns up. Uh, to be patient, I would also tell myself, and something I think I, I very strongly believe in, and I'm sure you do, that uh, young lawyers need to get a life. You're a much, much better lawyer in the long run if you're not burnt out by your early, mid-30s. And the young lawyers in their 20s need to make sure they get a proper work-life balance. It, it's not good enough to be there at 9 o'clock in chambers or 10 o'clock or working all night just for the sake of it. You know, you, you don't see your family, your children, and then you lose that spark in your 30s. You want to be You want to be on tip-top form in your 40s and 50s,
1: then make sure you enjoy life as well as practice. I absolutely agree with that. I think it's a marathon, not a sprint, actually, a successful career at the bar. You know, life throws things at you along the way and you need to have the ability to deal with anything that comes your way. And if, if you're burnt out and have no life outside of work, then that's going to be very difficult. Of course, absence of a life outside work is not something you've ever suffered from, Nick. But that is another conversation for another day. <laughs> In the meantime, thank you very much for joining me and sharing your experiences of Brick Court and beyond.
0: Thank you for listening to this programme. You can find out more about this special centenary podcast, the other podcasts in this series, and 100 years of Brick Court Chambers by visiting our website, brickcourt.co.uk, or by following us on Twitter at Brick Court.